Okay. Yeah, so there's this idea of him praying about his future work. He's willing for God to show him what he wants him to do. Uh, we tend to have an idea of here's what I'm going to do, and we kind of want God along for the ride, but not necessarily say, God, what do you want me to do, and then I'll do that, right? Okay. And arriving at that is a interesting process. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Anything else that we notice from this first quote here? Yeah. Not, not many people are going to be uh, willing to say they fully serve Satan. Um, you don't hear that much anymore. Yeah. An acknowledgement of how bad we truly are apart from God. Yeah, sometimes we're not willing to admit it, right? Okay. Uh, the next little section here. Mueller desired to serve as a pastor in Bucharest, but right after he agreed, he was asked to consider ministering among Jews in London. To, in response, he said, I added it was not proper for me to consider any other service because I had already agreed to go to Bucharest. He agreed. The next morning, all my desire for going to Bucharest was gone. This seemed very wrong and fleshly of me, and I entreated the Lord to restore my former desire to minister there. He graciously did so almost immediately. How can we decide between two legitimate options for serving Christ? Mary. Pray about it. Okay. And if we pray about it and we're still not convinced, what do we end up ultimately having to do? Yeah, pick one. And then let's say another one comes up right after that that's also good that we might even be more excited about. What do we do at that point? Or at least what was Mueller's response? I've already committed to this one, so I need to pursue it until I, you know, unless it doesn't work out, right? Uh, that's challenging, I think, in our present context because I think it's really easy for us to say, I will go with whatever seems best at the moment, and if something better comes along, then I'm going to go for that instead without having any strong sense of loyalty or commitment to what you've already agreed to do. Um, Bob? Do you think that is the main factor in most churches with pastors? Meaning why pastors leave churches? Tenure, yeah. I mean, it, it seems the average is six to eight years. Sure. And then they're gone. Yeah. And so I'm just curious, it, is it because it's so easy? Is it because there's so many opportunities, or is it because of their ambition, or combination? Do you think? I want to tread carefully here because I don't know everybody else's sure. motivations for things. But my observation is usually, maybe not usually, often it includes factors like money or unfulfilled opportunity that someone wants to do something with. So, um, just take our church for example. If somebody says, I have this huge desire to have a, let's say, a prison ministry, right? And let's say that none of you were burdened about doing a prison ministry, that is going to be an unfulfilled desire. And then maybe there's some church that's close to a prison, and the guy says, if I go there, I'll have an opportunity to have that prison ministry. Um, kind of like the idea of someone leaving a church, just generally even a regular church member, I think there should be a lot of prayer and consideration, like with Mueller, to say, God, if my desire is to go do this thing, but I've committed to do this other thing, give me a desire to do the thing I've committed to do. And that's where I think I admire his response to it. Instead of saying, here's the thing I really want to do, work out all the details so I can leave the thing I've committed to to do this other thing instead. Um, is it sin for a pastor to go from one church to another church? No. Does it often leave the first church in a difficult spot. I think, especially for smaller churches, not having a pastor for a year or two is rough, right? 
I mean, I think you guys are aware of that. So I think it's one thing if it's something like retirement or something with family, like let's say there's an aging parent and says, I got to move to be close to them and take care of them. I feel like that's more understandable if, if, if it comes down to God is leading me to this place where I'm going to get paid twice as much money. That's where it's kind of like, let's really be honest about what our motivation is. Because I think for a lot of pastors, if they're honest, God leading me becomes the excuse to blame God for wanting to have more money or more recognition or more opportunity of some kind. Um, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it probably is more... more visual, more uh, apparent with the pastor, yeah. I think the same thing goes for the congregation. I've been tempted many times to go to another church, just not a specific church, but to say, you know what, I don't like this, so maybe I should go find a church that doesn't do that, or something that does, like you said, that we're, something that we're not doing. And so I think that that temptation seems to always be there for everybody involved. Right. more visible if it's the pastor. Yeah, so take something like, let's say, oh, we feel like, I'm going to pick on Bob, we feel like the youth ministry is really terrible, so we're going to, um, we want to go somewhere where it's better. Well, you could say we're going to go somewhere where it's better or bigger or whatever, or you could say, let's chip in and help the one that we already have and make it better. Let's participate. So instead of saying, oh, well, we're not going to attend this church because there's only so many people in the group, the more people that say that, the less like the, the, there's less and less chance of it ever taking off, right? And, you know, at the end of the day, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to have a youth ministry or a kid's Sunday school or an adult Sunday school, for that matter, right? It just says the church has to gather regularly. So in connection with all those things, there's a lot of things that can go by the wayside that aren't commanded, but there's also this degree of if, if our only goal is to say, unless this is all set up, ready to go, without any sort of hiccups, I won't participate in it, then it's much less an attitude of service and more an attitude of here's a one-stop convenience shop for everything that I want. Sandra, go ahead. When you say it, what do you mean? Can you clarify what you mean? For a pastor or for a church member or both? Or? For any type of that. Okay. Whether you're called into ministry or teaching or called to the students or mission work yeah. or, you know, even do a Bible study. Yeah. Um, it's an inner call in the Holy Spirit and the Lord will be your pace and book and stepping out and the Lord will lead you through prayer and opening closing doors. Okay, I could. I think we could even expand that to saying like job decisions for everybody, right? What do you want me to do, God? God will direct us if we seek His wisdom, right? So that kind of goes in the next question: What's the role of feelings, particularly excitement or dread, in evaluating whether a particular decision would honor God? Xander. Okay, yeah, there's got to be biblical principles, right? So, um, I mean, an, an easy illustration something like marriage. Two people meet, they're like, oh, we think we might like each other, let's get married, right? What are some really important questions that I'd be getting asked before they say, yeah, let's just go for this? Are they both Christians, right? Uh, what else? Are they both 
Do you have similar goals, right, Mary? Which church are you going to go to, right? So there's all these really important questions that if we simply do something based on being excited about it and we don't ask the, the more complex questions that help us slow down and think through things. I mean, in the, in the context of marriage, the most basic thing is the commitment. If the commitment exists, there's a whole lot of difficulty that can be worked through, but it's going to be a pretty bumpy ride, right? In the context of the same thing like with the job or whatever, if you say, I believe God wants me to do this, God wants me to go plant a church, uh, let's just say, um, let's just say one of my cousins who farms down in southern Indiana says all of a sudden, God wants me to go plant a church in inner city Detroit. Can they do it? Can they stick it out? Absolutely. Is it going to be rough? Yeah. Because they're not familiar with that context and um, there's a whole lot of ethnic and cultural issues that are different. And so, Along the same lines, I think, you know, when Jesus says the one who's going to build the tower should think about it before he gets going and count the cost and all those sorts of things, it doesn't mean don't do it. It means that there needs to be at least this pause between the excitement of this looks like a really good opportunity or on the flip side of things, this fear about all the bad what-ifs about something um, to say, what are the biblical principles? What does godly advice counsel me to do? Godly uh, mature believers counsel me to do as I pray? Um, God, you know, work out these details, and that actually gets into one of the next things that he's going to do. So let's kind of go there. Because of the war between the Turks and the Russians, they had decided not to send a minister to Bucharest because it was the center of war. After prayer and consulting with spiritually mature brethren, that's what I just mentioned, I concluded that I should offer myself to the London Society, leaving my future with the Lord. So the first opportunity, he was pursuing it, he had made a commitment, he's going to do it. They said, everybody's fighting and this is the center of the fighting, we're not going to send you there. So that frees him from his obligation of having committed to go to Bucharest. And so now, when he's approached again, do you want to go to minister to the Jews in London? He says, I'm free to do so, uh, but let me pray about it, let me seek godly advice. After doing those two things, he says, yes, I will do it. But here's the next obstacle. My chief concern was how I could become exempted from military duty and obtain a passport for England. I believe that the Lord had allowed things to happen this way to show me that my friends would be unable to obtain a passport for me until he was ready. I left a lot out, but basically what happens, the only way that he could be exempted from military duty was to go to the government office and say, hey, will you clear me not to do this? And they said, we can't make that decision. You've got to talk to people higher up. So he goes and talks to people higher up, and they said, we can't make that decision, and they just sort of wait for a bit. The way that he finally goes about it is to actually go through the process of joining the military at the advice of someone who says, I think if you do this, they're going to look at your health and say that you're not fit for duty. And so he actually goes through the process of joining the military as though he's going to serve, which is not what he wanted to do at all, so that he could be declared unfit for duty and get the exemption so that he could go preach in, in London. Tina. Did it, I, I didn't understand what was his disability. He had just been kind of sickly, and I'm not sure. I don't know if it goes into all of the he ways. He really didn't. Yeah. Yeah, and like I said, this version is very um, abridged. I think Bob was saying he feels like if you listen to the full version... One of the chapters may be 20 or 30 pages, and the one in this is 6 or 8. So there's a lot that's left out. But uh, he says um, he had been, hang on one second. After, I, I know after he got sick. 
I was, he says, I was very weak physically from a former illness. So whatever he had before, it kind of left him kind of frail. I don't know if it was pneumonia or what, whatever kind of things. There were several times that he got sick because God, I think, was trying to arrest his attention when he was living wickedly and just like laid him flat on his back several times. And so I think some of the lingering effects of those things is why he wasn't, wasn't fit for duty. But yeah, when he says, God let it happen this way to show me my friends couldn't do it until he was ready, it raises this question for me. When God delays fulfilling a desire of your heart, why does, he, why does he do so? So was it a good thing for Mueller to desire to minister to people? Yes. Was it a good thing for him to desire to minister to people where there was a need, even if it wasn't his home country? Sure. Why did God not let it happen right away? Tina? Okay, maybe he wasn't spiritually ready. Okay, good. Sandra? I think um, some of the times the Lord wants us to wait patiently. I think some mm-hmm. works on him. He gives us the work. Okay. Yeah. All right. What else, Bob? And sometimes he's just working out the other details yeah. in the background that we don't even know about, which I think is one of the one of the coolest things is when we get to that point and we're past it, and we can look back and see all the things that he was doing that we didn't even know he was doing. Not that that happens all the time, but it happens. And what's, a, what's an appropriate response at that point? Praise God. Yeah. So if everything always happens in a really easy way without any obstacles or any bumps along the road, we tend to easily take credit for it ourselves, Right. But when there is difficulty along the way, when we have a particular timeline for things happening in our minds and it's longer, uh, or there's just unexpected things that come up, but we see how God is working through it, even if it's little glimpses, maybe not all of it, then our response should be to praise God and to marvel at what he's doing and to just see how, um, uh, how he's working things out, you know, so... Um, talking with someone the other day, just this example of uh, they needed to pay a bill, right? And they were praying about it, and they were praying about it, and they were really discouraged, and the next day, some money, some friends sent them some money that showed up, and it was the amount they needed to pay this bill, right? God can do things like that, and the response is just to be amazed at what God's doing. Grace, did you have your hand up? You sure? Okay, maybe it was your dad. Go ahead, Bob. So, we say this a lot. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pray about it. Yeah. I don't remember anybody ever telling me what result I'm looking for when I pray about it. And okay. I don't know if other people, and now I'm, I'm settled in my mind what that actually means after many years doing that, but I wonder how many people don't even know the purpose behind the act of prayer for guidance and what they're actually looking for. And uses that as well. Yeah. Well, I guess my question would be, what do you feel like the purpose of it is? To build our trust in him. Okay. And it's not to look for that specific answer. It's to exercise our dependence. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also a desire, a a sense in which James 1 says anyone who asks for wisdom from God should come to God expectantly that God will give that wisdom. 
But yes, I think there is also a sense in which if we say, God, I want to do fill in the blank. Answer my prayer with, yes, you get to do fill in the blank. That's not really an attitude of, of, of depending on God and recognizing that He can change our plans and all those sorts of things. It should probably be something more along the lines of, God, here's what I would like to do. Here's what I think would be honoring to you. I pray that you would work out these details. I will wait patiently for you to show me what you want me to do. Is that getting at some of what you're talking about? Sure. For example, sure. The, the thought process of I have peace with this yeah. is the, is the ever-encompassing proof that God wants you to do it. Like you said before, you know, should I stay at this church or should I go to this other church? If I go to this other church, I'll, have, I'll make more money and I'll have more opportunity to do the things that I want to do. You know, I really have peace about that, and I've prayed about it, so that's what I'm going to do. It must be God leading me that way. That idea, we, we use this false sense of peace about doing something to justify a lot of the decisions that we make. And I don't think that's the point. I think that part of maybe what you're getting at is the fact that a lot of decisions we feel like are individual, and we should also consider the other people around us that they impact. That's not all of it, but... Um, so again, and it, this is not me saying this is an example because it's something I'm planning to do. But if I said I'm planning to go to this other church, and I just said I've thought about it, I've prayed about it, I'm good with doing it. Or if I even said I've thought about it, I've prayed about it, and my kids and I are good with doing it, that's not really a reasonable. There needs to be more to it than that, right? Because it doesn't just affect me or my kids, right? It affects a whole lot of people, right? Um, I think um, I think one of the challenges is the larger the group of people that you ask for input on a particular decision, the less consensus you will potentially have, because everybody has different opinions on different things. So um, I'll just throw out one that might be controversial. If I said to you guys uh, at some point down the road. Um, if I said something like that I was going to get remarried, and I said, what are your thoughts on that? You might have a variety of thoughts on that, right? The thing that we'd have to come back to is, what does the Bible say? And, and ultimately, that would be a decision that I would have to make, but if I didn't have any concern and regard for how that affects all the people around me, then I think that would be foolish of me, right? Or um, let's say that... Um, trying to figure out another example. Let's say that Robert says I'm going to go to school, and Robert says I'm going to go to school in California, and then he says I'm going to go to school in California, I'm leaving next week, and we say all right, and then let's say that you know Evan's really busy with something at work, and we're like who's going to run the soundboard? And Robert's like it's good. I, you know, this is what God's calling me to do. I'm just going to leave it. But if there's no preparation to fulfill this role that he's not doing, not going to be able to do any longer, then there's a degree to which it's not necessarily a sinful decision, but it could potentially be inconsiderate. I'm not saying you can't leave and go somewhere to school. I'm just saying, give a slightly more heads up. Um, or I'm just trying to think of just a variety of, uh, you know, let's say somebody said, I can't do a particular ministry at church any longer. Again, it shouldn't just be, 
hey, I, I'm just tired of this, so I'm just, I, I quit, right? There needs to be time, there needs to be prayer, there needs to be getting different people involved. Bob? Yeah, and I think that's one of the missing factors for most people is seeking wise counsel from people that aren't just going to tell you yes. They're right. going to be objective. They're going to you know, give you even some pushback to say, well, have you considered this before making those decisions? Yeah, and there's actually a point, and I don't know if it's in the abridged version. I think it is, but I haven't gotten there. I know it's in the full version where he's going from one place in England to another place in England, and he goes to the place that he's leaving, and he says, what do you guys think about this? Are you guys okay with this? Because usually what the, you think, you, am I going to the, the place that I'm going? Are they fine with it? Well, of course they're going to be fine with it because they want you to come, right? But going to the people who are going to be, to a varying degrees, heartbroken that you're leaving them and say, do you believe that this is God's will for me? That's a lot harder, and that, I think, gets that point of pushback of, is, is this uh, the right thing at the right time, in the right way, all those sorts of things. So, any other quick thoughts on this before we move to the next one? Sandra. Right. Yeah, because sometimes the things that we want might be good. Like, it's not sinful to say, um, trying to think of a good example. I mean, it's not sinful to say, I, I want a bigger house in a different spot so that I can more easily have a lot of people over. That's not sinful per se. But if we're unwilling for God to say no and then say, okay, what can I do with the spot he's already put me, then we're not really being submissive to God's will. Um, it's not sinful to say there's things that are really hard about the job that I'm doing for this particular company and it would be great if I could find a job where I could enjoy going to work every day, maybe make more money, maybe not, um, but if God doesn't work that out, what am I going to do in responding to this place that's hard? Keep faithfully fulfilling the obligations that I have there. Um, let's say that there's someone in your family member, family or you, that has some really big health issue and it's just a burden and a struggle. I mean, there's nothing wrong with praying, God, would you take this away, while recognizing at the same time he may not and we have to make wise decisions to the extent that we can affect that, like, um, I don't know, if you have some sort of heart issues and you keep eating tons of like bacon and sausage and whatever else every day or whatever might contribute to it, and you're like, God, why don't you take this away from me? Well, you got to make some wise decisions, right? But at the same time, there's the reality that there are things about which we have little to no control and we may desperately plead for God to fix those things, and God may essentially say no, and then we still have to say, how am I going to serve you despite that, right? And so, again, there are good desires that we may have, 
But God often doesn't answer them in the time or the way that we want or expect. And we need to be okay with that. Um, Norma. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But there's times when God will still say no. Like David wanted to build the temple and God said, you're not going to. But here's how you can get it ready for Solomon to do it. Uh, Paul said, here's the place I want to go uh, and be a missionary. And at least at first, for a long stretch, he never got to go to some of those places, right? Um, and so we don't always understand, or there's people who said, well, I'm going to take the gospel to this place. They get there and they die of some disease, like, a month after they get there. There's a fair number of examples of that in the early missionary endeavors of the church in the 1800s. So why do things happen like that? We don't always know the reasons for them. That doesn't mean the desires were bad or that God wasn't honored in the seeking after them. It just means God's sometimes doing things that we don't understand in ways that we really don't expect or even enjoy. Um, I mean, I've had to think about this in the last six months. I mean, I've been doing a lot of thinking about the last four years. Um, Bob sent me a picture on Friday and said that it was four years that you came to the church. And I was thinking about when I came, here was my expectation of how things were going to go and what was going to happen. Um, and it was basically, here's my first go at pastoring a church by myself. And here's all these ideas I have about things we can do as far as outreach and discipleship and uh, you know, projects we need to get done and, you know, whatever else. And then two months into it, everything was happening with Maggie and I was kind of unable to do a lot of that stuff for a long stretch. And then it felt like things were about to get normal. And then all the COVID stuff happened and that threw things for a loop for a while. And we had to work through that. And then we got through all that and uh, it felt like things were getting back to normal and then everything happened with Kelly. And so I think some of the things that I've had to think about are, are I, was it a wrong desire for me to say, here's what I think would be good for the church and pursue it? No. But I think, among other things that God has been teaching me, it's the fact that there needs to be humility in it and, you know, an attitude of if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that, right? Because we can be really confident in ourselves and say, this is what's going to happen, right? And that's what a lot of people push as far as leadership or Here's your vision for your organization or your, your church or your whatever thing that God's given you, your family, that God's given you responsibility for. And there should be a degree of planning and not just sort of haphazardly fumbling through life. But there's got to be a lot of humility in saying, I don't know what's around the corner. So I'm not going to use that as an excuse to say, until conditions are perfect, I won't do anything. Because conditions are never going to be perfect, right? Even if there is no established routine, you can fit in the work that God wants you to do around everything else that's the upheaval of your life, right? Um, and not make excuses for why you're not doing it. At the same time, uh, there needs to be a degree of just submission to um, God changing your plans, right? And uh, there are a lot of places along the way where it doesn't feel like a good thing, you know, the fact that he was so sick that he couldn't join the military was going to create obstacles for him in his ministry, right? Because it comes up over and over again as you read through the rest of this book. 
I was doing this and then I was sick for two weeks. I was doing this and then I couldn't do ministry and this other person had to step in. Why does God cause things like that to happen? Sometimes so other people will step in and fill the gap. Sometimes, as we've talked about before, to increase our dependence on Him. Um, sometimes so that we have a right attitude about the nature of life and death. So let's look at the next part here. Mueller became extremely sick in England. In my estimates, I was beyond recovery, yet the weaker I became in body, the happier I was in spirit. Every sin I had ever committed was brought to mind, but I realized I was washed and made completely clean in the blood of Jesus. Shortly after, he prayed, let me either soon be taken to heaven or let me be restored. Lord, do with me as you think best. So what should we meditate on in sickness that is apparently leading to death? What are right, right prayers in response to such sickness? What are some of the things that he's meditating on while he's seemingly on his deathbed? Yes. Sandra? Yeah, but I, okay, I, I think that ties in with what he's saying. Uh, let, let's explore that a little bit more. What, what does he say he's thinking about? Every sin I've ever committed, Satan, he doesn't say Satan, but I think that's maybe the sense of it, is parading before my mind. What truth is the corrective to that despair? Jesus has forgiven it. Right? What do we tend to think about that? Well, what do we tend to advise people in similar circumstances to think about? Joys of heaven, how life will be better when they go to be with God, all those sorts of things. Is there a right and appropriate place of rejoicing the fact that I'm a sinner and I know I'm a sinner, but Jesus has forgiven me? Yes. So meditating on the truths of the gospel is more than just there is a resurrection and there's a place beyond this life. It's also, I'm a sinner, I don't deserve that place, I don't deserve to be with God, but Jesus has done a work in my heart and life. Tina? What got me is, is that uh, it was all his sins were brought to his attention. Right. And now I think that happens a lot, well, it happens a lot, in my opinion. You know, that you forget the sins you committed. Right. Yeah. So he could ask forgiveness, and that's awesome. Yeah, and I'm not even sure that he was at this point asking for forgiveness. I think he was just saying it's already been dealt with. Right, right. But there are also cases where in those moments when we're laid flat on our backs, whether it be a temporary or a long-lasting thing, that it's an opportunity for us to deal with things that we wouldn't otherwise deal with. And sometimes we, we waste those opportunities because we're so focused on getting better from the sickness that we don't say, here's an opportunity, however unwelcome, to work through things that are important. What are right... Uh, go ahead, Bob. I was going to say, so he points out that uh, spiritually it was a, an extremely refreshing time because he was able to spend more time with God and his word and prayer. It makes me think about um, Jim Berg said uh, when he had a heart attack he said I wouldn't recommend it but it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because he got you know six weeks or whatever it was to do nothing but spend time with God so again just looking at each opportunity how can I use this to honor God is this time that I can take to spend with him that right. sort of thing. 
Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's been things like at the points at which I felt like there are there has not been enough of me to fulfill responsibilities to church and to family uh, and to just all these other sorts of things. Those are the moments at which I have to call to God for help. And I am eager and ready to do it, right? When life's going well, we think like we have it all together, and we don't. We should have the same closeness to God in help that we do in sickness when our, our bills are paid and all those sorts of things as when they're not. But the reality is we quickly forget how much every breath, every moment, every task that we have to fulfill is dependent on God and His strength, and we quickly move away from just depending on God. And so, right, right prayers could be, like He did, take me to heaven or let me be restored. They could be, God, thank you for this opportunity to consider the truths of the gospel. They could be, Lord, May this be an opportunity for other people to serve you because I'm not able to serve you. They could be any number of those things, right? And we tend to think that the only prayer is, I'm sick, God make me better, right? Devin? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is not. These are not the only two options, and I think that's a good thing to point out. Well, and in the book, he he did offer two other options. Okay. He, he basically said, uh, "Let me be healed right away so I can start serving you, or take me home." He said, "But also." Uh, either let me endure this suffering well and then take me home or be restored after a long stretch of suffering and serve you. So he kind of covered all his bases. Yeah, okay, yeah, and that's the problem with the bridging it. We leave out some of those things. So I think that gets it. At, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, keep going here. Uh, during this time, God showed me that his word alone is our standard of judgment in spiritual things. The word can be explained only by the, that should be the Holy Spirit, who is the teacher of his people. I respond to this truth by laying aside my commentaries in almost every other book and simply reading the word of God. So here's my question. Is there a place for commentaries in the study of scripture and what is it? Or any kind of books in addition to what the Bible itself? Sandra? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the Bible's a focus, but there's maybe a place for it in connection with some of these other things. Okay. What else? Bob? What was interesting was he started off for, I don't remember how long it was, let's say the first year of his preaching, praying and saying, God, what do you want me to preach about? He wasn't preaching expositorily. Yeah. He was just, whatever came to his mind, if he felt peace with it, he would preach it. Yeah. And he saw God do many things through that. Sure. But then he comes to the point and he says, but I realized that the best thing is to preach 
through a whole book. That way, you're forced to address sections that you wouldn't necessarily do, and you're not just cherry picking, essentially. Right. So he got to that point. Yeah. In the beginning, it was just, he says, sometimes he caught up there, didn't even know what he was going to preach. Yeah. And just, you know, let God work through him. Yeah. Uh, so is, is it sinful if somebody were to go from book to book, week after week? No. Is it, there helpful, is it helpful to be consistent and, and cover things? Yes. I'm not, I want you to understand, I'm not saying this necessarily as saying I'm going to preach a different way here. What I'm trying to get at is this idea of sometimes we feel like the starting point is the devotional book or the whatever else, and the starting point needs to be what God has said. And sometimes we need to sit down and wrestle with that because I feel like going and looking at a commentary is sometimes like if you're filling out something for school and the answers are in the back of the book. You go look at the answer, you're like, oh, okay. And, and it doesn't force you to, I guess I would put it this way, commentaries should help you check your work. They shouldn't be the first thing you jump to, right? It's kind of like why, at least in the past, they wouldn't let you use a calculator for a lot of math problems because you wouldn't understand the process as well if you just got the answer right away. And so, to the extent that what he's saying is pointing to that, that, yes, ultimately God's Word is ministered to us by the Holy Spirit, and that's what's most important, I absolutely agree. I think, to Sandra's point, I think if we are going to teach God's Word to someone else, I think that, which we should be doing, all of us to some extent or another, we do need to be checking our work and being careful that what we're saying is true and all that, and those things can be safeguards. But like I was saying, even on the making decisions and getting lots of advice, certain passages, you'll get 20 different opinions on what the verse means. And you have to come back to what does it mean in its context, given all the other things we know about the Bible, and not necessarily be swayed by all of these external books. Next thing, uh, one young woman came to know Jesus Christ as her Savior that first evening. This blessed me because none of the resident ministers liked the sermon. The Lord judges so differently from man. So how should we evaluate sermons? How did he evaluate this sermon? Yeah, based on the effect. Someone got saved. What if we preach something and no one gets saved? Does it then mean it was bad? Not necessarily, because there's more than one effect that it can produce. But to the extent that these resident ministers were evaluating the sermon based on on like technicalities, we like how the outline was put together, or we liked the phrasing of the things that he said, or we liked his delivery, or we thought it was a really neat illustration, or whatever else. When we evaluate a sermon based on superficial things, rather than clarity, plainness, adherence to what the Bible says, with hopefully right effects produced by it, then we can be both very critical right? Um, and there's a right place for criticism to the extent of if something I say is not true, I want you to tell me, right? There's also a degree where we can get so focused on little details like uh, repeating <laughs> phrases creeps into whenever we talk, you know? Uh, there was one pastor I was listening to, he would say something, he'd use a phrase like, at the same point. Um, there was a pastor who took over after my grandpa, the church I grew up at. Every single introduction was, let me begin as I often do by asking a series of questions. He didn't need to say that phrase every week because we knew what he was going to do, right? And it would bug me. But if 
the rest of the sermon was good. Is that the thing I should get hung up on? No, right? Um, so it's really easy to become critical instead of benefiting from what is what is biblical in a message. Bob? Well, and you, you said judging whether or not the sermon was good. Yeah. That's something that we have to wrestle with, too, as we're sitting there listening. How do we define it as good? Right. Do we define it as good because it makes me feel good? Right. Like, early on, after I got saved, to me, my opinion was, if, if the message convicted me of my sin, it was a good message. Mm-hmm. And I still believe that, right. but that's not the only thing. Right. Yeah, sure. Yep. Okay. Um, there's all the stuff he talks about preparing and delivering sermons. We'll, we won't go into that for sake of time uh, beyond the things that I think we already discussed a little bit. At the end here, he says, The anointing of the Holy Spirit helps me greatly. One day before preaching, I prayed and meditated for six hours. After I had spoken a little while, I felt I was speaking in my own strength instead of God's power. So he paused the message for a time of prayer. And he goes on to even say, he goes a little bit further the message. He still had that sense of things. So he said, we're not going to finish the message. We're just going to have a prayer meeting. And the next time I preached, I was greatly helped. Why are many preachers, teachers, etc., unwilling to do something like this? Reputation, Devin? Yeah. We want to, I mean, most of us, if we're leading something in front of people, want people to think that we know what we're doing and that we have it together and all those sorts of things, right? And if we acknowledge that there are higher goals than what people think of me or the situation, then we say, what's the right thing to accomplish in the situation, right? And if the right thing is that God and His Word are honored and that His Spirit works among us, there are a variety of ways for that to happen that don't necessarily look like this. And so I think that's where I, I have a problem with the people who, out of laziness, say, I'm going to go speak for something... Uh, say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Is that a true verse? Yes. But me grabbing Isaiah 35, 4 out of context and just saying it to people without any thought can be presumption on my part more often than it is the Spirit leading me, right? At the same time, if I get up to talk to people and I just have a sense of all this thing that I prepared is not really what they need to hear, and God reminds me of some other passage, and I say to myself, I don't feel ready to preach this other passage, but I think it's what people need to hear. I don't think there'd be anything wrong with someone saying, I'm going to switch what I'm saying, or, you know, we should just go to God in prayer. And that's the thing that I think I appreciate about this. So, all right, Norma? Yeah. He does, yeah. And, I, and, and like I said, it's, it's not... If, if we use that as an excuse to be lazy and not do our job, like there's a later point where he, or even in this chapter, where he talks about, I wasn't convinced of what God wanted me to speak on a particular week, so I read 40 chapters of the Bible to find the right thing, right? Most people, it's like, I'm not convinced of what God wants me to speak of on this week because I haven't thought about it at all, so I'm just going to grab the first thing that comes to mind. And those are two completely different things, right? So, um, yeah. All right, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this opportunity to learn more from the life of George Mueller. Pray that these things that we've talked about will help us to consider our walk with you and that we'll have a profitable time in the service now. In Christ's name, amen.